invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts 14 today. That's where we will be beginning our study together. And we're coming up on the climax, really, of the book of Acts, chapter 15. We're going to see the end of Paul's first missionary journey. We will see the church universal begin to debate what it means to have the Gentiles in the church. And we will see the final ink in the book of Acts on the person of Peter. We'll be seeing really the new covenant language that's so prevalent in Paul's writings and that the ideas of faith and grace saves people as opposed to works in the law, not law keeping. And so it's all just happening in one sermon today because when it rains, it pours. So you're welcome. Why don't we dive right in? I invite you to stand in honor of hearing the word of God together. We're again beginning in Acts 14.21 if you're able to stand and we're going to read through 15.12. We read, talking about Paul and Barnabas, when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Persia, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered in the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they had come to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared, they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father, for me personally, 
I still struggle to completely understand and appreciate your grace. There's a part of me that wants to feel judged and condemned whenever I sin. But to know that you offer grace more, grace greater than our sin, help me to internalize that today. And Father, may that grace continue to work in my soul to bring about a greater obedience and a greater love for you, for your way and your work. Father, we pray that you would be speaking today and not I. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many of you, you're going to have to reach back a couple of years. Others of you are like me and Christy and we have kids. One of the prayers that Christy and I often pray is, Lord, help us not to wound our kids. We're thinking of emotionally. Because it's our desire to see our kids flourish in love for Jesus and His kingdom and flourish in maturity and obedience and kindness. But we get quick to see results sometimes, don't we? We don't want to see sins. We want to nip bad habits in the bud. And so I'll just speak for myself. But sometimes in, in discipline and in correction, I get really angry. I get short. I get hopeless and disappointed. But the passage today culminates and climaxes in something that outsiders of the church love picking on Christians about, and that is internal strife and internal struggle debate. Oh, look, the church is fighting. Why do I want to be a part of that? But grace is worth fighting for. Because first we see that grace is a better motivator. Grace in God is what defines him as decisively not the angry, impatient dad that I am at times. Rather, grace in God is at the very soul of the Gospel. Peter calls the law a yoke on the neck. It's hard to keep. Impossible to keep. But I want to argue that grace is more purifying. Grace is more rigorous. Grace, in some ways, is more hard, just in different ways. Laws and works leads to pride. I can keep what I think to be the law and feel good about myself. Or laws and works can lead to despair. I realize I can't keep the law, so I'm doomed. And for the proud, it becomes easy to consider a job's well done. I've done my part. I've done my dues. I'll go home. And for the despairing, it becomes easy to forfeit. I've tried. I've failed. I give up. I'm done. For those in grace, it's hard to know when to, when to quit. <laughs> it's hard to go home because God's grace is always sufficient. And His forgiveness is always there to where it extends the believer to keep going because sin and despair won't hold him, hold him back. He's found grace and forgiveness in Jesus. And pride won't hold him back. He's reliant and dependent upon God and His grace. Do you hear that? You and I can keep going. Sin need not send you home. Guilt need not to swallow you up. Cling to grace. 
And our point, our case in point is Paul here. He's a dead man walking. If you back up to verse 19 and 20 to remind ourselves what's just happened, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, a city in the back hills of Turkey where even the Romans are like, wait, we own that? And, and, and Paul and Barnabas have been going from town to town, leaving both disciples and opponents in their wake. And it's escalated to where this happened. We talked about it uh, last week, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And we talked about this. Was he really dead? Was he just thought dead? Whatever he was, it was critical. He was hurt by all accounts. Whether it's by resurrection or just healing from a nearly dead state, this should have never happened. What happens next? We read, But when the disciples, that is the disciples that Paul made here at Lystra, gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. See, Paul's still going. (laughs) He's a dead man walking. He's going further eastward to a place called Derbe. And then we read this in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Do you catch this? This is why I need a map. Paul and Barnabas are close to Tarsus. That's Paul's hometown. It would have been quicker to return to the Antioch of Syria where they came from. Not the Antioch they're returning to in verse 21. Antioch, Pisidia. They would have been closer to come home. It would have been safer because they're going back to where Paul was stoned. They're going back to where all this opposition was met with to begin with. See, i got to be honest. I love comfort. (laughs) I'm a little bit religious. I'm a little on the law and work side. I could have been a bit smug, a bit proud. Are you kidding me? I about died in Lystra. Uh, I planted my churches. I put in my time. I deserve an easy ride home. My hometown's in sight. I'm just going to go home, catch some coffee with the parents. Then I'll return to Antioch Church, home stretch. Not Paul. Not Paul. He's saved by grace through faith. He has a grace that keeps him going. Grace to know that he's saved. Rich, lavish, freely given grace that compels him to make sure that every saint saved by that grace is instructed and built up in that grace and in that faith. In other words, grace is a better motivator than religious law-keeping would be. Paul's got to go back. The work's not done. So they return, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And the many tribulations here refers to variety as well as quantity. Uh, The word itself might be uh, heard as pressures. Lots of pressures, which is actually prophetic because as Paul and Barnabas come through these towns, no doubt recounting or maybe re-experiencing some of the pressures of persecution, They're going to arrive back at their home church, Antioch, facing internal pressures. Pressures from inside the church. Believers face many pressures as we strive to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas this time, though, know that they need to set up some long-term leadership. We read in verse 23, 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Many of you know elders in the Old Testament Israel were judges and governors of tribes. In the New Testament, we find that they kind of had similar managerial roles. In the sense here that Paul and Barnabas appoints them, especially when you see how Paul writes about them, First and Second Timothy and Titus, they seem to be top leaders in the churches. And the wording suggests that there is a plurality of elders at these churches, several elders at each church. And these were heavy decisions, no doubt. Paul and Barnabas didn't know when or if they'd be back. We don't know how long of a time that they spent going out or coming back. Perhaps they made relationships with people there. In fact, Acts 16.1 would tell us that it was either at Derby or Lystra where Paul met Timothy, who he would eventually write letters to. So probably with great heavy consideration and praying and fasting, as we're told in the verses, Paul and Barnabas, and no doubt help from the local congregation, they're appointing elders. And then verse 24, And when they had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, those are regions, districts, whatever you want to call them, and when they had spoken the word in Persia. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, Persia is where Barnabas and Paul first landed, coming from Cyprus. We see their arrival in Acts 13.13, but we actually don't see any preaching when they got there, when they first landed. In fact, it seems the, the first big movement they did after landing in Persia was to head 100 miles north up into the Taurus Mountains on into Antioch, Pisidia. One thing we did see after their landing was the departure of John Mark. See, for the first leg of their missionary journey to Cyprus, they had John Mark. He's a cousin of Barnabas. This is also the same Mark who wrote the book of Mark in the Bible. But after he landed, he left for reasons unexplained to us. Some have suggested that there, some have suggested that after his leaving, there was some emotional disturbance and some time to regroup that made Paul and Barnabas silent and say, well, you know, let's just go on to Antioch. We'll, we'll get here. We'll preach when we come back. Others also note that this region was prone to folks getting malaria. And in fact, in Galatians 4.13, Paul says that it was because of a body ailment he first preached to the Galatians. Pisidian Antioch sits near the edge of the region of Galatia. In fact, some believe that actually at this time right here in Acts 15, about 48 AD, coming back through Persia, going back to Syria and Antioch, it may be this is where Paul writes his letter to the Galatians, which would encompass Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all those towns. And one reason people believe that Paul writes during this time is, I don't know if you remember this, but the content of the book of Galatians has very much everything to do with about the Jerusalem council about to take place in Acts 15. So the whole reason for the council is what Galatians is about, and it seems very interesting if Paul wrote Galatians after the council, but he says nothing about the council. So people think, well, if he doesn't mention the council, maybe he's writing it before the council took place. Interesting side trail, now you can compete in jeopardy. <laughs> Verse 25, And when they had spoken the word in Persia, they went down to Italia, a coastal port city, and from there they sailed to Antioch, Syria, where they had been commended to the grace of God 
for the work they had fulfilled. In other words, they're back at Antioch Church, the church that sent them out in the first place. Indeed, this is Paul's first missionary journey, as some would say here, is now done. So they have to give a report. That's what you do, right? Verse 27, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, Paul and Barnabas, and how he, it's interesting that now they single out Paul here, he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. The expression meaning the exact opposite, they remained a long time here. We don't know how long. But then the internal pressure begins, right? So we have the external persecution, the world clashing with the truth, other religions clashing with Christ, but now we have internal pressure, 15.1. But some men, Paul would call these people in Galatians 2.14, Judaizers, and then both Luke and Paul would give these people a very unflattering term, the, un, the circumcision party. They came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, if you don't know the Bible, you're probably a little thrown. Seems like a weird thing to suggest. Even if you do know the Bible, but you aren't living 100% in its culture, you still might be a little bit thrown. (laughs) Now, here's consider with me when circumcision is adopted. Genesis 17, 9 through 14. So first of all, it's the book of Genesis. And the time of its events are prior to the law of Moses, prior to the nation of Israel, really. People would say Abraham is a pagan Gentile, the father of our faith. Paul calls him our father. Paul calls his offspring the children of promise or of faith. In other words, uh, Abraham's offspring is us, is what Paul says in, in Romans 4. You can read that for yourself later. But real quick, Genesis 17, 9 through 14 says this. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring. There's that term, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male young Among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. And so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So these teachers are coming. Here it is in history. (laughs) Before the law, to be part of the covenant people of God, you need to be circumcised. That's the point. I I can personally understand how they think that. Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small, there's that saying again. In other words, they had a huge dissension and debate with them. Right? Paul could be saying to them, I just wrote all the churches back in Galatia about folks like you. Cut it out. (laughs) Because grace is worth fighting for. That's uh, This isn't something where Paul and Barnabas can say, well, you can teach that. We'll teach this. Let's live in harmony. No, it's got to be grace. (laughs) It has to be grace. And so 
it's on. (laughs) Paul and Barnabas are ready to go to the head honchos to hash this out. It's grace or it's not the gospel. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up. And you've been seeing maps. They're going south down to Jerusalem. Again, Jews thought spiritually Jerusalem was the highest spot on the map. That's what mattered to them. So Paul and Barnabas and some of the others. Now think about this. This was likely the ones carrying this argument about circumcision. They're going with them. They're all going to go back down to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they're going 250 miles to the council in Jerusalem. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy all to all the brothers. So here's the fact of the matter. Paul and Barnabas were just on an entire missionary trip for who knows how many months, maybe years. They never declared to any of them, oh, by the way, keep circumcision. <laughs> keep the law of Moses. If this teaching that these Judaizers are bringing prevailed, and if the church universally would accept it, it meant quite the thing for Paul and Barnabas and every single Gentile not comfortable with circumcision and not ready to keep the law. And the reason great joy is being brought to the brothers as Paul and Barnabas head to Jerusalem is because of grace. Grace is the testimony. God's kindness had beckoned even non-Jews to repentance. They're being added to the kingdom. And it's super exciting because for a bunch of Jewish Christians and half-Jew Samaritan Christians, hearing Gentiles converted is like unthinkable. You mean the weird, pagan, multiple God, idol-worshipping, crazy backwards people? They're all accepting Christ? Um, They're all coming to Christ? But also, if you think about it, consequently, what is Paul and Barnabas also doing? It's getting crowds and crowds of people excited, subsequently also in support of what Paul and Barnabas preach, a gospel, a Messiah that saves through faith and saves by grace and not through works of the law. See, Paul and Barnabas, I don't think they're they're doing it politicking or they're doing it uh, intentionally, but they are consequently planting supporters. That this is how God operates. They're garnering support. This has got to be a little awkward too because the odds are the Judaizers who came up to Antioch to begin with are likely in the traveling party. Oh, Paul and Barnabas are going to go talk about their gospel again. You know, we'll just go and eat some food. So the very preaching that ticks them off, Paul and Barnabas are doing it again and again and again when they recount the salvation that's been falling on the Gentiles. Another interesting thing, when they came to Jerusalem, who lives in Jerusalem? John Mark. (laughs) That's got to be a little awkward. Hey, we want to tell you about the missionary journey where John Mark left us. Anyway, (laughs) they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Church welcomes them. Leaders welcome them. The elders welcome them. Paul and Barnabas are happy to relate all the events that just happened in their travels in Galatia. But then here's what religious people do. And I know this because, you know, I'm one of them at times. Here's what happens when somebody starts talking about, oh, and they came to Christ and I gave them a Bible and then a religious person stops the conversation. What Bible? (laughs) What Bible? (laughs) Was it a good Bible? (laughs) Um, Are they reading heresy or a real Bible? (laughs) 
And I'm not saying that your, your Bible picking is not important per se, but we are religious people are so quick to doubt, be skeptical, minimize and diminish. And here's what the religious people do to Paul and Barnabas. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and says, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And I know that's how they talked. <laughs> we got to be polite here. I'll try. Luke says that these are believers. Okay, so I have a tendency to be religious. I'm picking on me. Religious people, picky, self-righteous people can still be believers. And these believers in Christ come from a background in the Jewish party of the Pharisees. Pharisees were birthed as a holiness movement. So were Nazarenes. So were evangelical friends as a holiness movement in the Jewish people. And the whole way they approach their faith is this. Hey, God's spoken to us. Let's endeavor to keep it. <laughs> it's a noble idea. Let's do what he tells us. He promises blessings for obedience. Let's try to be obedient. Let's take it seriously. That's kind of the mindset. Well, what's ironic is that Paul, before his conversion, was a Pharisee. Um, it's why Paul was militantly opposed to the church, because Christ was just overshadowing everything else. And so some Pharisees, like Paul, they become Christians, but they didn't want to take it too far. Here's what I imagine them doing. Well, yes, we believe Christ. Let's just put our Bibles here next to the law. And here's the Messiah. Now we got the law, the prophets and the Messiah. Good stuff. All on the same level. And this is really the crux of the argument. In fact, I was given this question in Bible college. It's a question posed to students. Is Christianity to be minimized as an outgrowth or an offshoot or just another sect of Judaism? For Bible times, there were different sects. There were the Sadducees, there were uh, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and so forth. And in the mind of these Pharisees, there are now Christians. <laughs> all of which, um, excuse me, all of which these Jews base their beliefs on the Bible, or at least part of it. Or, is the implication of Christ much bigger? And that he has to be understood as something completely different from Judaism when all is said and done. And, what decides this is the situation of the Gentiles. Because if all a believing Gentile needs to do is receive Christ and live in light of that, apart from all that it means to be Jewish, namely following the law, then Christianity is obviously something different. But the rest of the Bible would say something greater. I like that idea. Something greater. Something better. More fulfilled than its Jewish roots. Maybe different is the best word here, but this is the crux. This, that's why Paul and Barnabas are here saying, hey, Gentiles have received Christ. And the concerned religious people say, so are they Jewish? Have they received the Jewish Messiah? Have they received circumcision, the sign of our people? Are they keeping the law, the law given to, by God to our people? Is our faith, our religion based on the law or on faith or on grace? And that's why we see here, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. <laughs> the leaders of the church, the entire context suggests that as much as possible, the entire church is gathered here, but Luke is showing us that the leaders are considering this matter. And after there had been much debate, so I can't stress this enough, it's a big issue. <laughs> you and I can take the Bible and we can see people like Paul in his letters to the Romans and to Galatians and read the Old Testament for ourselves. We have the entire book before our hands 
And boy, if somebody was on that council with an entire Bible there, this could have been done quicker. (laughs) But Paul and Barnabas, the twelve, they're living this. They don't have the whole Bible in multiple translations with multiple study versions nearby. They're figuring this out for themselves. And so, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Speaking of having the Bible in your hands, it's likely that Peter is referring to his interaction with Cornelius, a Roman centurion, so a Gentile. So for us on Sunday mornings, this was like a few months ago. For those of you uh, holding Bibles in your hand, that's about five chapters ago. But for Peter, he's talking about something that maybe happened about 38 A.D., so that would be about ten years prior, only five years after the resurrection of Christ. But don't miss out on this. Peter is playing the God card. (laughs) He's saying, God chose me to bring the Gentiles to the gospel. How so? Well, Peter had a vision. So did Cornelius that God uses miracles to bring them together so that they might hear the gospel and believe as they did. So much so we hear Peter say, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them. God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did the Jews. God showed no partiality. Think about this. God didn't give the Gentiles a different form of His Spirit and then the Jews a better or different form. God made both. God gave them both an equal share of the Holy Spirit. There's no difference. And so the point is this. God showed up in their hearts just like He did in our hearts. But they don't have the law. Well, apparently God didn't consider that. Sorry. (laughs) Were they circumcised? Should we pull one of these Gentiles up here on the stage and see if when the Holy Spirit filled them, if God asked them that question? (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, how did God save them? And that's the remainder of verse 9. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. That's the key statement. That's a loaded, pregnant statement because we have the desire of the faithful, namely the want of a cleansed heart. And then we have the how to get there, namely by faith. It's not the law, it's faith. It's not keep laws, do better, try harder, it's faith. In fact, Paul writing about this very subject in his letter to the Romans would pit these two systems against each other. He would say in Romans 3, beginning with verse 28, For we hold that one is justified, declared right, Made right before God, as the NLT would say. (laughs) Shown to be forgiven or acceptable by faith. And then hear how he contrasts it apart from works of the law. And then he repeats Peter here. He shows from a creation standpoint, God is not partial to one race on earth. He says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one... Who will justify the circumcised, another way of saying Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, Gentiles, through faith? Well, faith in what? (laughs) Let's see how Peter ends his testimony here back in the council, picking it up, 1510. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
So Peter's really pulling no punches here. <laughs> He's already brought out the God card. God told me to give the, gen- the gospel to Gentiles. And then he said, God filled their hearts with the Holy Spirit as he did us. God cleansed their heart by faith. So it only logically follows that any disagreement or any pressure to make the Gentiles then to keep the law and be circumcised, they're not simply just spouting off really deeply held convictions and opinions. They're blatantly putting God to the test. See, Peter has reframed, and rightly so, just who these Pharisees are opposing. (laughs) They're not opposing Paul and Barnabas and how they see things. They're opposing God. Paul says they're putting God to the test. Peter is saying, consider the evidence. They believed the gospel. That's pretty big. The Holy Spirit showed up in their lives in a real way. I saw it. You know, maybe they spoke in tongues. And even though Peter may not word it the way Paul does in the letter to the Galatians, Peter could say they show evidence of changed lives, fruits of the Spirit. So if all this is already happening in the lives of the Gentiles, it seems kind of pretentious to say, well, yeah, God did all that, but we want more from them. Make them do more. But we believe, says Peter, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Hmm. There is Peter, a Jewish man, saying, I've had the law all my life. I can't keep it. (laughs) I'm relying on grace to be saved and I expect them to be doing likewise. See, now Peter approaches it from the other side and he's saying, it's not that they don't need our Judaism, but I'm getting in on the gospel out of my Judaism as well. You hear that? (laughs) They don't need the law nor circumcision because even though we have it, we don't need it as well because what we both need is faith. (laughs) Faith in the grace or kindness or unmerited favor of the Lord Jesus. Jesus comes and says, My love is enough. My grace is sufficient. Jesus says, I want your salvation and I have accomplished it at the cross so that you need not to be deterred by your own efforts, but take complete hope in my efforts and receive in me the forgiveness of sins. Receive my spirit and let your hearts be changed by my spirit so that you don't have to try hard to do what I tell you, but you'll live with me inside you to do my will, which is a much better option (laughs) if you ask me. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. Original Greek didn't have punctuation, but I think that's probably a response to Peter, first and foremost. Because he made a good case that I think, hey, you're kind of ignoring what God is doing. If you want to see all the evidence of what He's doing in their lives, but then still demand more out of them. Especially if you think that faith in His grace is really what saves us, but it's not just enough to save them. Think about it, people. That's kind of what he's saying. And when he makes this case, it then probably opens them up, maybe in a new light, to really hear and appreciate again what God did through Paul and Barnabas. It says, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The reason that Paul and Barnabas were willing to circle back and to preach and instruct the gospel of grace in the hearts of the Gentile converts is because grace is worth fighting for. The reason that Paul and Barnabas were willing to go 250 miles to Jerusalem and have it out at the church is because grace is worth fighting for. Grace is worth fighting for. Is grace worth fighting for in your own life? 
It isn't mine. There are so many times where I want to choose pride. I got it all figured out. I've studied it through. I'm saved. I've arrived. I'm doing what God wants me to do. Or I want to choose to despair. I've failed again. God's done with me. I'll never see the light of day. But the God of the Bible and the gospel of the Bible is one that always screams grace. It's always grace that says, you've not arrived, you can do more, you can be more. And it's always grace that says, God's died for you, God loves you, God's grace is sufficient enough to forgive you over and over and over. Grace is worth fighting for. It is grace that will compel people to Christ. It is grace that will turn hearts of stone and darkness and coldness and change those hearts to the living God. I'm trying to be a gracious dad. Because I firmly believe that grace does a better job at producing the fruits of righteousness and obedience than law and religiosity. That's the kind of dad that you and I have in our God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you gave your gospel to the apostles and we see in people like Paul and Barnabas, tenacious, obedient people that are willing to fight to see that the truth of your grace is completely understood and preached in your church. Because, Father, you revealed your son, Jesus, to save us through grace And Father, here I am as a pastor, no less, still struggling to understand, still struggling to really apply this to my life. Do you really forgive me again? Do you really love me that much? Father, help me to live into that grace. And help us, whenever we reach out to others, to do so in the context of love and grace, to see others saved by you. Because, Father, I firmly believe that your grace whenever it moves upon a heart. Father, it has to open them up to at least consider you. So, Father, would you help us? And for those of us who are struggling with religion, struggling in our pride, thinking that we're better than most people, or struggling in our despair, thinking that, no, you you don't forgive us. You're done with me. I've done too many things. Would you remind us again of grace? Father, that uh, how many times do you forgive? Seventy times seven. And would you remind us that you knocked the pompous Paul down and you've changed his heart. That he was a religious lawkeeper to a T. But you changed his heart and you helped him to be more effective for your kingdom because of grace. We thank you for this. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.